Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast here on Legal Talk Network. I'm Chris Morgan, Governor of the Law Student Division's 12th Circuit and a 3L at the Gonzaga University School of Law in Spokane, Washington. Joining us today is Mr. Dean Strang. Dean practices law in Madison, Wisconsin as a shareholder at Strang Bradley. He was Wisconsin's first federal defender and has argued in the United States Supreme Court, five federal circuits, and the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Dean is a lecturer on the adjunct faculty at the University of Virginia School of Law, and his first book, Worse Than the Devil, Anarchists, Clarence Darrow, and Justice in a Time of Terror, was published in 2013. He was recently featured as one of Stephen Avery's lead defense attorneys in the award-winning Netflix documentary series, Making a Murderer. Hey, Dean, thanks so much for joining us here on the ABA Law Student Podcast. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Chris, and everybody else for having me. So uh, let's start uh, with a little bit about you. Did you grow up in the uh, Wisconsin area? I did. I was born on the south side of Milwaukee and spent most of my um, childhood in a suburb just southwest of Milwaukee. Did you always know that you wanted to go to law school or was it something and an interest that you developed kind of as you got older? The latter. <laughs> I had no intention <laughs> of going to law school until I was really in my junior year in college. Um, I had always intended to be um, an editorial cartoonist, at least wow. for as long as I can remember having a a plan for the work I wanted to do. And it was my junior year in college when I decided that as much as I really love political cartooning, it probably wasn't going to be a good 50-year job for me for a variety of reasons. That turned out, I think, to be a remarkably mature decision. But I really didn't have much of a plan B after scrapping plan A. My dad's older sister was a lawyer, um, still is um, a lawyer, and sort of the brightest person in the family. And so he thought that law school might be a good idea for me. I resisted that somewhat, but this would have been 1981 going into 1982. And at that time, there was, um, as, as you may well know, just a voracious demand for young lawyers coming out of law school, you could almost be a zucchini and get into law school. Um, and so in a sense, it was a path of least resistance for me at the time. So after graduating law school, did you always know that you wanted to practice criminal law or uh, did you bounce around in some other areas of practice for a while? You know, <laughs> there again, the answer is no. I ended up in criminal law really uh, by serendipity. I had no intention of practicing criminal law. Uh, indeed, I had no plans from the beginning to the end of law school of ever participating in any litigation or any you know, courtroom-oriented practice. So it was really serendipity that I ended up in criminal law. I, I started out of law school with a large civil firm in Milwaukee. Um, my intention had been to do employee benefits work. But the firm, after I accepted its offer, the firm told me, well, 
they didn't really need anybody in the employee benefits department. They did need somebody in the litigation department. I wasn't very happy about that, but they tried to mollify me in part by saying I could do employee benefits litigation. And indeed, they kept that promise. So much of the litigation I did for the first two and a half years out of law school was ERISA litigation, mm-hmm. or employee benefits litigation. And then a series of accidents led me into criminal defense eventually. So having your own firm at the time when you guys took the Stephen Avery case, were you familiar before that about his pending lawsuit against Manitowoc County? Was it something that was on your radar, maybe only in the news? Well, yes, I was familiar with the pending lawsuit. If you paid any attention to local news and lived in Wisconsin at the time, you were aware of that, of his exoneration in 2003 and then the later federal civil rights litigation. So I I knew what any reader of the newspaper at the time would have known. I also happened to know the two lawyers who were handling that federal civil case for Mr. Avery. One of them had been a former partner of mine and the other I had known just as a He's a fairly prominent plaintiff's lawyer in Wisconsin, was then and is now. So how were uh, Jerry Buting and yourself uh, approached about taking on Stephen's case to begin with? Well, the two lawyers I just mentioned, his, his lawyers in the federal case, gave Stephen Avery Jerry's name and my name and probably another name or two, knowing those lawyers, as potential lawyers to hire to defend him in the uh, newly filed state murder case. I think Stephen happened to call me first, and I met with him. He and I both were interested in bringing Jerry into the case. Jerry and I had worked together on a number of cases before Mr. Avery's and always had enjoyed collaborating. You know, Jerry and I view our skills as being complementary and that we have compatible personalities. We really always have looked forward to working with one another, and this seemed like a good opportunity to do that. Stephen Avery agreed, and that's how it happened. So once you guys were hired, it sounds like it's a ways away from where you were practicing. I've heard, did you and Jerry have to rent a place for the length of the trial? We did. We did. The courthouse was two, two and a half hours from where I live in Madison, Wisconsin, and over an hour and a half from where Jerry lives in a suburb on the west side of Milwaukee. So that was just too far, way too far to consider commuting during a trial. So Jerry and I rented furnished apartments about 10 or 15 minutes from the little courthouse where the trial was held we had separate apartments, but uh, I was up and he was down in the same building. Starting off initially, when you're first starting to work on the case, what was your understanding of what Manitowoc County's involvement in the case would be or kind of what it should be, given the conflict of interest? I knew from the saturation media during the days when Teresa Halbach was considered a missing person that the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department was saying publicly itself and through others that it had recused itself from 
the investigation and had turned everything over to the neighboring county's sheriff's department, and for that matter, to the neighboring county's district attorney. That's what, you know, anybody listening to the news was told during that period of time and in the weeks following. I learned, I think, after I began to represent Mr. Avery, that it just wasn't so, that in fact, the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department had participated importantly in every step of the investigation, and indeed, that most of the significant physical evidence from the prosecution's perspective actually had been found by or first in the custody of the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department, notwithstanding its supposed recusal. Did uh, you and Jerry do your own independent search of the Avery grounds? I I know it's a pretty big area to cover. Uh, Was that one of the first things on your guys' radar was to go out there and kind of explore the grounds yourself? Yes, and I wouldn't describe it as a search, but very much a site visit. And I'm I'm a believer that in every case, and I don't care whether it's a white-collar fraud case or what it is, that in every case, one really needs to go to the scene, needs to go to the milieu of the client and of, you know, the alleged crime. You really need to get a feel for place. And I, I just, I view that as essential. So that was something Jerry and I did immediately after he got involved. And I may already have been up there once in the week or 10 days between my entry into the case and Jerry's. So flash forward to the trial. There's a scene in in the documentary that kind of struck me, and I I think it struck a lot of people, where you're talking about the presumption of innocence in Stephen's trial, and you tell the judge essentially that the state should start every criminal case swimming upstream, and the strong current against which they should be swimming is the presumption of innocence. In your view, was the presumption of Stephen Avery's innocence eliminated before this trial even started? Yes. Functionally, it was. I think it would be hard to argue otherwise with a straight face. The pervasive pretrial publicity, um, the antipathy against him among many in his home county, and especially one of the prosecutor's press conferences, the one on March 2, 2006, the day after Brendan Dassey was arrested, Mm-hmm. Uh, effectively destroyed a presumption of innocence. And Stephen Avery entered that trial presumed guilty as a practical matter, witnessed the fact that something like 129 out of 130 jurors who were considered for impanelment on his trial jury answered their questionnaire saying that they already believed that he was guilty or probably guilty. At the uh, voir dire stage when you guys were picking and impaneling a jury to begin with, did you find it difficult to find suitable jurors who weren't already too predisposed to make a neutral evaluation of the case? Yes, very difficult. I just told you where we started right. with the large jury pool overwhelmingly predisposed to believe Mr. Avery was guilty. And, you know, then we had six peremptory strikes with which to work uh, during the 
roughly week that we spent on jury selection. And, you know, most jurors, if they're interested in serving on a high-profile case, as I think many of the Medire members here were, are able to navigate their way through questions that might disclose cause to strike them. Um, right. You know, panel members are sworn to tell the truth during jury selection to the court's questions and questions from counsel, but uh, it's often very clear from the tenor of the question what answer is desired by the judge or by the prosecutor, for that matter, the defense lawyer, in, ask, in asking a question. And um, jurors who would like to serve, I think, often can frame their answers in such a way that they don't disclose cause to strike them. So you're left with a hopelessly inadequate number of peremptory strikes to try to remove the jurors least suited to judge someone fairly and impartially. So there's another scene, perhaps another one of those that really took audiences back a little bit, where Manitowoc County Sheriff Kenneth Peterson says on an interview that it might have been easier to just kill Stephen Avery than to frame him. What was going through your mind uh, when you saw that interview for the first time? I I was um, stunned would be an overstatement, but not by much. I've never known just exactly how to assemble the attitude of a law enforcement officer who might give voice to that kind of sentiment. Is he suggesting that in his mind, morally, it would have been possible to kill Stephen Avery? Is he suggesting that You know, these are rough moral equivalencies being suggested. Is he simply ruminating foolishly aloud to a reporter? I've I've never even known, as I say, how to assemble what the frame of mind of an experienced law enforcement officer might have been in making that sort of preposterous comment. And it still sticks out to me as something that just is a skew from the sort of way that I expect and by experience have come to know that experienced professional law enforcement officers look at the world and their jobs. So many people ask the question, if not Stephen Avery, then who? I'm curious, did the judge limit your and Jerry's ability to present alternative theories for who may have killed Teresa Halbach? Yes, the judge precluded us offering any specific alternate possible perpetrator. What he did specifically is hold that none of the eight possible suspects we tendered and briefed uh, as to none of those were we able to meet uh, the standard that he devised, which was that we had to show opportunity to commit the crime, a possible propensity, if you will, to commit the crime, mm-hmm. which was at that point settled Wisconsin law and I think not exceptionable. But he added a third requirement, which is that we show motive of a possible alternate suspect. And that made it impossible because now the admissibility or availability of an alternate suspect, evidence about an alternate suspect, 
was made to turn on, in effect, the character of the victim. That is, if you had to show someone who had a reason to kill this young woman, a motive or a reason for wanting her dead, no one possibly could show that. Uh, why? Because she had good character. Uh, she was young. She'd given no offense to anyone on the planet, so far as I know, and nobody had any possible reason, rational reason, to want her dead. So there's a reason that the prosecution is never required to prove motive in a murder case. But here the judge imposed on the defense a burden of proving motive if we wanted to offer alternate suspects. That functionally made it impossible to offer alternate suspects, and indeed the judge foreclosed that evidence. That was a very difficult ruling for the defense because the question you asked, if not Stephen Avery, who... Jerry and I knew at the outset every juror would be asking that question as well. Mm-hmm. And we weren't then allowed to try to provide an answer. I've always thought, and obviously this is in my infancy as, as a law student and young lawyer, that sometimes the public kind of has a fundamental misunderstanding or a hard time understanding the burden of proof in a criminal case and what reasonable doubt is all about. So my question is, how would you define reasonable doubt? And uh, do you think the prosecution here was able to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt? Well, you've got a premise in there and then and then two questions. I think your premise is correct. I think um, the public in general struggles with burdens of proof in a criminal case, what they mean and how to differentiate the highest standard proof beyond a reasonable doubt from an intermediate standard proof by clear and convincing evidence from the normal civil standard of proof by preponderance. And and those are uh, concepts that I think are pretty abstract to most jurors and framed in language that's not the argot of everyday life. And judges in general, courts in general, don't make it any easier for jurors in the jury instructions they give trying to explain reasonable doubt. Those instructions, again, are often couched in language that's arcane, if not altogether archaic. My own functional definition of proof beyond a reasonable doubt would be, you know, do you have a doubt for which you can articulate a reason? Or practically speaking, if it was your brother on trial, would you be willing to listen to the evidence in a fair-minded way, and turn to your brother and say, yes, I'm prepared to convict you. Do you think that the prosecution was able to prove their case here beyond a reasonable doubt? I can't speak to how the jurors perceived the evidence here. Their verdict at least asserts that they found the proof sufficient against Mr. Avery. What I can say is that When I try to be as objective and fair as I can be, and I look back at the evidence I heard with my, you know, front row seat in that trial, I as a juror could not possibly have found that the evidence satisfied me beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Avery killed Teresa Albach. Why do you think people were so taken by making a murder? Kind of after you've had some time to reflect and see how popular that the series has gotten. Is there something that stands out to you of, as to why it's become so popular or why people are so drawn to this story? 
I have only tentative ideas about that. Um, and my ideas probably are no better or more sophisticated than yours are, Chris. The tentative ideas I have in sort of scattershot fashion would be that, you know, the 10 episodes of at least the first installment, if you will, of Making a Murderer gave over three hours of screen time to actual footage from Stephen Avery's murder trial, and then gave another hour, hour and a quarter, hour and a half, something like that, to actual footage from Brendan Dassey's murder trial. And I don't know, but that might be unprecedented in English language film documentary um, covering trials. I don't know. It just, it struck me as more actual trial footage than I had ever seen or heard in any true crime documentary I had ever watched. So that might be part of it. Another part I think is, um, you know, the story is intrinsically fascinating. Um, Stephen Avery's background as an exoneree who served uh, 18 years wrongfully in prison for a rape he didn't commit makes him an unusual person and uh, even unique. So far in the annals of American justice, he's the only exoneree who, after his release, has been charged with a crime as serious as homicide later. So that may you know, be part of the interest. And there's no doubt in my mind that the videotape footage of the police interview of Brendan Dassey um, grabbed many people viscerally. And even a few years before 2005 or 2006, videotaping of that interview would not have happened. It, it was only about that time that uh, or in that era that videotaping of police interviews of juveniles in custody or adults for that matter became commonplace. You know, so I, those are some thoughts about what may have grabbed attention um, and interest as thoroughly as this film did. I know too that you know, for most countries, most nations on this earth, there's no such thing as cameras in a courtroom. Right. So if you're Irish or if you're Swedish or Dutch, you know, or you live in the Ivory Coast, this might be your first opportunity to look at what actually happens in a courtroom somewhere here in American courtroom, but, but a courtroom, um, as opposed to a dramatic reenactment or a fictional portrayal of courtroom proceedings. So I think internationally, some of the appeal of the movie might be rooted in, in that reality, that this is just an actual peek inside a courtroom at real proceedings as opposed to fictional ones. So going off of that, in the age of new technology and media and cameras in the courtroom, how important do you think it is that we maintain that type of, of transparent ability for the public to see what's going on? How important is that to preserving the integrity of the system as a whole? You know, I don't know whether this will surprise you or not. I actually have sort of mixed feelings about cameras in courtrooms. Um, on balance, it's probably good for the reasons we might group under the heading transparency, as you just suggested, or allowing a broader swath of the public to watch what uh, government officials 
are doing in their names. But there's also something lost with cameras in the courtroom, too. They, um, cameras can affect in subtle ways the behavior of witnesses, the behavior of lawyers and judges. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the camera in the courtroom, I think, is not a great surrogate or not a fully adequate surrogate for coming down to the courthouse yourself in a country like the United States in which almost all court proceedings are open to any member of the public unless it's a juvenile on trial or, you know, there's some very special reason to close a courtroom. I realize that, you know, most people can't take the time or aren't in proximity to come and watch proceedings in court. But uh, something is lost, of course, when the camera becomes the observer mediating between the member of the public and the proceeding itself. What has life been like for you since the series came out? I know it's been busy, but have you kind of been all over the place? Well, the Making a Murderer came out on December 18, 2015, a date I won't soon forget, right. um, because it did change my life dramatically uh, and very quickly after the premiere of this film. And my life is is now some 15 months later getting back to normal gradually or back to the life I had before December 18, 2015. But I don't regret a, a moment of what's happened. I've been very fortunate to hear from thousands of people almost uniformly uh, thoughtful in their reactions to the film, generous and kind to me in emailing me or writing to me or occasionally calling me. The hundreds of encounters I've had on the streets have been uh, polite, uniformly. And I've had a wonderful opportunity to speak and to listen and to engage with a pretty large number of people on issues of criminal justice much broader than those peculiar to Stephen Avery's case or those particular to Brendan Dassey's case. I've had a chance to engage on, you know, with people who are intrigued by making a murderer, intrigued by those two cases. I've had a chance to engage with them on what is much more general to be drawn from those two cases or any case um, and what we might think of going forward outside, you know, the narrow or or sort of isolated context of Manitowoc County, Wisconsin, and two cases that now were tried 10 years ago. So uh, last question for you here. What advice, if any, do you have for law students who are aspiring to practice criminal defense work in the future? Keep track of your own humanity and I think restore and replenish it by recognizing the humanity in every client you represent and in every victim you encounter, every citizen witness you're asked to examine. The really beautiful thing about practicing law is it's an inescapably, constantly human endeavor. You see the best of humanity. You see the worst of humanity sometimes. You see human conflict and often very poor resolution of human conflict. 
and you're part of a very human system where everybody from, you know, uh, a judge on a state Supreme Court on down to a part-time police officer in a small town, everybody is human, uh, has strengths and weaknesses, and has to be understood as a human being who's a work in progress, um, just as do our clients and all the other people we encounter in courtrooms. And I think that while people, you know, lawyers sometimes burn out on law, you don't burn out on human beings. You really don't. If you look for what's made them who they are, why they act as they do, and how you can help them sort of rethink the path they're on or not repeat mistakes they may have made in the past. Um, This can be enormously rewarding work. Um, If you're interested in criminal defense too, I think you ought not rule out thinking about prosecution. And it's not that it's not that every criminal defense lawyer could be a prosecutor or every prosecutor a criminal defense lawyer. In fact, my own experience has been that the best prosecutors never could defend and the best defenders never would be comfortable prosecuting. But I say law students ought to think at least about prosecuting because the most direct and most effective way to try to shape justice, shape a just outcome in a given case is to prosecute it, not to defend it. It's the prosecutor who can decide not to issue charges. It's the prosecutor who can decide to issue lesser or fewer charges than law enforcement officers may be recommending. It's the prosecutor who can decide to dismiss a case when she begins to have questions about whether the proof is sufficient um, or whether continuing the prosecution is simply the right thing to do. Defense lawyers are reactive and often quite disempowered in the process. So for someone who's really motivated to pursue justice, the most immediate opportunity to do that often lies in working in the prosecutor's office, not the defense office. That said, if you're a defender, you're a defender. And uh, and again, I think the sustenance in that lies in appreciating the rich humanity in which you're immersed all the time in this work. Well, hey, I just want to thank you again, Dean. Uh, Your work uh, on the Stephen Avery case and in Making a Murder, I know, has done a lot. It's opened a lot of people's eyes and either introduced them to the criminal justice system or introduced them to some of the inequalities or problems with transparency that we often find within the criminal justice system. So just want to thank you so much again for joining us. I know you're a really busy guy, so uh, I appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk with us. It was my pleasure, Chris. Thank you very much for asking me. Well, that's it for us today here on the ABA Law Student Podcast on Legal Talk Network. Thanks again to all of our listeners. Be sure to hop onto iTunes and check out and rate our page and the podcast. Uh, you can also reach us on Twitter at ABALSD. Until next time, I'm Chris Morgan. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, 
Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.